Welcome to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. I'm Scott, and I thank you for joining us. In this episode, we feature a Canadian master of the clarinet, an instrument that is at once ubiquitous and inconspicuous in creative music, at least relative to its louder cousin, the saxophone. Our special guest is François Houle, spelled H-O-U-L-E. Originally from Quebec, François now calls British Columbia home. He's been prominent in Canadian creative music circles for decades. He's a composer with vast recording and performance credits in Europe and North America. He's also partnered with a long list of musicians covering everything from new classical to jazz to free improv and experimental music. One distinction about Francois is that he has classical training and has crossed over into jazz. His work bridges these sometimes very separate worlds. My first connection with Francois was in 2000, when I saw him perform in a gallery space in Philadelphia. He played with acoustic guitarist Scott Fields. I bought their then new CD, Hornet's Collage, which is playing in the background right now. I was captivated by the textures, harmonies, and melodies they formed with simple instrumentation. It was clear that their music was composed, but also had considerable elements of improvisation, and it was hard to tell what was scripted and what wasn't. Like Francois himself, their pieces seemed to fuse classical and jazz roots. I was intrigued, to say the least. Since then, it's hard to summarize everything Francois has done. Just in the past several years, he's released a dizzying diversity of recordings. We'll hear samples of a few of them today. Je vous présente François Houle. I play the clarinet. 
I just had an insatiable curiosity about anything that had to do with the clarinet, regardless of origins, roots, or histories. And I got immersed, of course, at first into classical music, but my first teacher was also a jazz musician and sort of put the bug in my ear that, you know, that could be something to consider. But growing up, my parents were very insistent on me get, getting a career, of course, you know, they, and they, what they read about jazz musicians was maybe a little bit alarming to them. And, you know, in classical music, with the prospect of getting a job in an orchestra, I think that appeased their, their worries and, uh, and I was really driven. So classical was really the formation, but it was not until my college years that I started paying attention to the jazz scene to improv, improvise music. When I first went to uh, Europe, that's when I discovered the music of Steve Lacey. That blew the door wide open for me to uh, to really research improvisation and uh, and the whole history of the clarinet and jazz and also world music. That's why I do all these different things. It's like the clarinet is gives you an amazing is an amazing passport to go and explore the world. The clarinet is ubiquitous to so many of these traditions, uh, folk traditions contemporary music, new music, jazz, etc. My dad was really into big band music. He had a bunch of records at home of Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman, but Buddy DeFranco, Woody Herman. And Woody Herman, I love Benny Goodman, but Woody Herman, Thundering Herd, that was like really my first love. Uh, that's when I fell in love with jazz clarinet. I loved the sound, I loved the composition. I love the way that he played with the band. His solos were always so impeccable. So that's what put the bug in my ear. I think there's a resurgence these days uh, in the last uh, decade or so. There's much more legit clarinet players who are making a go at, uh, at improvised music and, and, and jazz. I think uh, after the swing era and everything, what happened is that the music got louder. When Elvin Jones came along, there was no way on the clarinet he could keep up with the, the amount of decibels that were generated by by the rhythm section. So the saxophone was definitely the go-to, uh, or the trumpet, or the trombone.
that I had to go and think about the type of writing that I wanted to do, the kind of aesthetic that I wanted to adhere to. And uh, my instrument really, really helped me shape what that was going to be. So working in contexts where the music is quieter. So I took a much more chamber music approach to things. Since I was always, already had a career doing a lot of new music, contemporary music and working in small ensembles, uh, from duo with piano to trios with cellos or violins to quartet, sextet, etc. I started writing my own music based on this environment that I was in. Exploring the history, when I discovered uh, Jimmy Jufri, for example, you know, he was the first one to bring in a, a drumless uh, combo, working only with uh, piano and, and, and bass with uh, Steve Swallow and Paul Blay. Uh, those albums from the early 60s, that's, that, those were formative for me. That, that was a huge discovery and it gave me license. Like it, uh, it allowed me to think like, hey, it's totally okay if I work in a band that doesn't have drums or that has something else than drums in the rhythm section. Again, the doors were opening up for me to go to take a course that was maybe a little bit off the, the beaten path. Frederick Shevsky was uh, in Paris. He ran into Steve Lacey and he asked Steve Lacey, 
well, what's the difference between composition and improvisation? And uh, Steve Lacey answered without missing a beat, just said, if you're going to write a 15 second piece of music, you've got all the time in the world to conceive of it. In improvisation, you only have 15 seconds. And coincidentally, the, the anecdote was that it took him exactly 15 seconds to answer your question. When I started getting interested in jazz, I realized, well, I, I don't have a jazz training. I would have to go back to school or take lessons or things like that. But I have a lot of experience performing compositions. So I just thought it would be easy for me to just take composition lessons and apply myself at composing rather than jumping into trying to learn standards and doing jam sessions, trying to learn the jazz language. So I kind of bypassed that in a way by going more for writing my own original music. quartet together a couple years ago with uh, uh, Gordon Gardina. It's a really great guitar player from Vancouver. And that quartet is with an American rhythm section with Jerry Hemingway on drums and Mark Elias on bass. So it's an album called Recoder. We're going to be touring this summer and we're planning a new recording, a second CD. We recorded this just before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and, and the borders got closed and we haven't performed live very much. Like we haven't had a chance.
there's an album that I did with a singer named Ayelet Rose Gottlieb with three clarinetists and a voice with Michael Vinograd, who's the really renowned klezmer clarinetist from New York, and James Falzone, who teaches at Cornish uh, in Seattle. It's all poetry that has to do with the wind. So we all picked uh, some of our favorite poems that were related to that theme and composed uh, some of the pieces were composed collectively, some of them were composed individually. The band is called Pneuma, uh, P-N-E-U-M-A.
I've been putting out a lot of albums of duo uh, since the pandemic hit, and they've been created in all kinds of different contexts. Uh, there's one called Chimera Trio, a double album called Constellations, uh, which was uh, a mix of compositions and improvisations that were reassembled in the studio after we did a, a week of recording sessions together. figure out how to improvise or how to introduce improvised concepts in my writing, in my compositional writing. So from the get-go, that, that dichotomy uh, is sort of what defines a third stream, that, that, term, that term that was adopted to de describe contemporary music that includes jazz elements and improvisational elements. And then the free improvisation part of it sort of grew parallel to the, my compositional practice. I have a bit of a musical omnivorous diet. Uh, if I just do improvisation for, for several gigs, I start feeling like there's something missing. You know, if I do all compositions by other composers, then I feel like, where, where's my voice in there? If I do all of my own compositions, then I, I start feeling like, well, I'm not really interacting with the musicians, I'm dictating the premise. Each area is fascinating and complete in, into itself, but for me to survive as a clarinet player, I just felt that I needed to have a little bit of this, a little bit of that in order to satisfy my, my appetite, satisfy my curiosity. I've been looking for a focus all my life, you know, and ultimately uh, that I do composition or improvisation or everything, the focus is still the instrument itself.
Francois and I talked about many things, including differences between the musical cultures of Canada, the U.S., and Europe, the local music scenes in places like Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, and the ongoing evolution of improvised music. Free improvisation, we're, we're sort of like in an era right now where we're entering the sort of third, fourth generation of free improvisation that started in Europe in the late 60s. That movement was very informed by Ornette Coleman, Jimmy Jufri, and uh, Cecil Taylor. They sort of made it their own language, you know, like uh, rather than imitating the American diaspora, they said, well, we're Europeans, we're, what's our music? And their music was new music, but they, they took improvisation as a reactionary standpoint to all the rigor and formalism of uh, modernist music. My point of entry into improvisation was much more a European point of entry than an American one. To improvise in that mode was very easy for me because I understood the language, I analyzed it. I'm not so much of a trend follower. I tend to do the things that I feel put forth my strength, my affinities. But having said that, I'm, I'm so curious that I'm willing to try my hand at all these different things, playing with different people. Now what we're dealing with is not so much a nationalistic identities to improvisation. Anybody can pick up an instrument and play and improvise. Um, you don't have to be virtuoso anymore to, to participate. Um, as long as you are interested in learning how to converse with sound and noise with other people, uh, you're, you become an able participant. That wasn't always the case, you know. The further we get into these new generations of practitioners, I think the virtuosity is almost seen as an impediment in some ways. And I grew up with the concept that in order to play music and play music well, you had to develop serious chops. You had to be an improviser. Regardless of wanting to be an improviser or a new music practitioner, you had to be able to play your instrument and know the rudiments of music and know all the structures and uh, all your your harmony and your counterpoint and all that stuff. And that's a very post-Western European mindset. Almost anywhere that you go to now with, this, with these new generations of improviser, the language has been stripped down to its bare bone minimum of how it works, regardless of where you come from, what instrument you play and what levels you're at.
You've been listening to the music of François Houle with Musical Collaborators. For links to François and his recordings, as well as a playlist of tracks you've heard today, please see the blog entry for this episode at rightbrainrecords.com blog. Listening to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. You can visit us at rightbrainrecords.com. Farewell for now. Join us next time.